Hello, this is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach, and I am the founder of PCOS Diva. And it is my pleasure to be on the phone with Dr. Andrea Denais. And Dr. Denais is one of the leading experts in research and genetics uh, with PCOS. And this is a, a topic that is so fascinating to me. Uh, in, in the fact that my sister has PCOS and my mom has PCOS, and I, I venture to say that even um, my maternal grandmother did as well. And, and I have a little girl, and I know uh, there's a lot of divas out there that are, um, you know, wondering about what the future holds for their daughters. And uh, I'm just so thrilled that there's doctors like and researchers like Dr. Denaif who are, are out there on the, the cutting edge researching uh, genetics. So thank you, Dr. Denaif, for being here with us. Uh, it's my pleasure to discuss uh, our ongoing investigations. Well, I just want to tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Dr. Denaif is the Charles F. Kettering Professor of Endocrinology and Metabolism and Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Medicine at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Before joining Northwestern in 2001, Dr. Denaif held faculty appointments at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, Pennsylvania State University College of Medicine, and Harvard Medical School. She served as the first director of women's health at Brigham and Women's Hospitals. She also established and served as chief of division of women's health in the Department of Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and led the Harvard Medical School National Center of Excellence in Women's Health. Dr. Denaif is an internationally recognized expert in endocrinology and women's health, and her research on PCOS has shown that PCOS is a leading risk factor for type 2 diabetes. Dr. Denaif is the director of the National Institutes of Health-supported Northwestern University Specialized Center of Research on Sex Differences and leads an international effort to map genes for PCOS. She has written more than 100 original scientific publications and has edited four books. She has received numerous awards and honors, including the Endocrine Society's highest award for clinical research. So again, welcome. Uh, Thank Dr. you very Denise, much. Yeah, I was wondering what you are currently working on. What are some research projects that you have in well, the work? One of our major objectives is to find genes for PCOS. So your mm-hmm. family is, is really very typical where uh, there are multiple affected women uh, within several generations of a family supporting that there is a genetic susceptibility. Uh, but it's not a classic Mendelian disease where um, it has, you know, like the the peas that Gregor Mendel, the monk, grew that he could uh, predict very rigorously knowing whether it was a recessive or dominant disease, how the peas would be affected. It's what we call a complex genetic disease. So the genes confer increased susceptibility, but there are additional factors. We think the environment may be important that also uh, determine whether somebody with a susceptibility gene will actually get PCOS. And it's been very, very hard to find uh, the genes in these complex diseases. And other ones are type 2 diabetes and obesity. 
And um, we've just finished a very large study looking for common uh, uh, genes for PCOS, and, and we found um, some genes, which are or gene regions. Uh, it's it's not that precise, and we'll have to do a lot more mapping. Um, the Chinese uh, in Chinese women with PCOS also have found using that technique about 11 gene regions for PCOS. Interestingly, in both studies, I mean, a lot of genes that we don't understand, and I think towards the end of the talk we'll talk about one of them, uh, have, have come up in these studies. But the genes that we do have an idea about how they function have been genes uh, that regulate how LH and FSH work mm. uh, on the ovary. So that sort of changed or may change a bit of our perspective to refocus on, you know, the regulation of ovarian uh, production of androgens by LH and FSH and of how the follicles then the, uh, grow and mature uh, because FSH is important in that. Um, but there are new techniques now available where we can sequence the whole gene, the cost has come down for that, and do that large scale. And we're looking for less common mutations within genes uh, in families of women uh, with PCOS. And what will be good if we can find those is um, it will give us much more definitive insight into the biologic pathways that might be affected. Because the common genes, which kind of makes sense, aren't going to have a big biological effect because otherwise they would have been selected against by evolution. But these rarer genes may have much higher effects on different processes. So we're really hoping that uh, we'll learn what cause or causes, there are probably different causes of uh, what we call PCOS, um, and that will really lead to our ability to develop new treatments. And, and that's certainly been the story in other conditions like heart disease where people have discovered um, genes that are important. It's led to new therapies. So I think that's very hopeful, you know, that the technology has made it possible to really do these very uh, detailed um, genetic analyses. I know that would be fantastic if that is what the research led to, new new therapies. Um, I wanted to just back up a bit to when you were talking about um, environmental factors and um, when you have a potential um, susceptibility to PCOS or a PCOS um, kind of genetic makeup, are you saying that environmental factors could maybe switch the gene on? Well, that's what, you know, one of the theories is. Mm -hmm. um, probably in PCOS, it's probably more, we're thinking, it, and, and this is just speculation, that, you know, maybe it's nutrition. So maybe if you become heavier, you uncover a susceptibility to PCOS, you know, because just as, uh, weight gain alone will cause some insulin resistance. We know that insulin can stimulate the ovaries to produce more male hormones. So maybe environmental factors 
i.e. your diet, that promote weight gain can uncover a susceptibility uh, to PCOS. There's also more speculative evidence of, you know, maybe um, some uh, in- environmental chemicals, some of these environmental estrogens, but that's very, very speculative, and there, human mm-hmm. evidence for that really is 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 not there with any convincing detail. Mm-hmm. And what is your thoughts on this concept um, that women with PCOS kind of have those thrifty genes that they served us well back in the kind of hunter-gatherer um, era when, you know, we were probably more active and because during times of famine, um, you know, we held on to fat better or whatever and increased our chances of reproduction. I mean, I know that there's some sort of theories like that floating out there. I, I often see articles um, around that about PCOS. Yeah, I mean, there's a. It's kind of been adapted and and mm-hmm. to the fertility first hypothesis, and that um, what the PCOS gene really does is it conserves the ability to ovulate when you're not getting as much nutrition, uh, and that women who had the PCOS variant in times when there was food shortage uh, would maintain their reproductive capacity much better than uh, women without the variant, and that's why it was preserved. You know, these things mm-hmm. are, you know, they make great uh, teleologic sense, but uh, we really don't don't know what mm-hmm. what the actual environment was. I think some interesting things we've learned about the genetics of PCOS is that in Chinese and in uh, European Caucasians who split off, so we as humans migrated out of Africa 60 to 100,000 years ago and some of the human populations went into Europe and other human populations went into China. And so uh, we've been separated from the populations that um, went to China for probably 50,000, 60,000 years. However, there are shared genes between Europeans and Chinese in women with PCOS. So it suggests that some of the genes uh, that cause susceptibility to PCOS are, are very ancient and very conserved. Um, which I and a number of investigators think is com- completely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is. Um, you know, I was also wondering about the um, male relatives. Um, you know, and this is just my personal experience, but I look at my dad, and, and he also has blood sugar issues. Um and now that my sons are reaching puberty, you know, they're, they're struggling with hypoglycemia. And I just, you know, I'm just wondering, is there a male version of PCOS, um, or what have you encountered in your research and studies? Uh, well, we've done a lot of systematic studies in, in the male relatives, and there are several other groups who've, who've also looked at that, uh, particularly in, in the sons. What we've found is in... The brothers, 
in adulthood, you know, 18 to 55 years old, they do have increased levels of the adrenal male hormone dehydroepiandrosterone sulfate or DHEAS, mm-hmm. um, just slightly increased. And that's as a group. You couldn't kind of go up to a male relative, measure a DHEAS level and say, oh, you've got male PCOS and somebody else doesn't. But as a group, they also have evidence, well, they are insulin resistant. We've done, you know, actual uh, glucose clamp studies as, as of other groups. And they tend to be heavier. They don't tend to be obese, but they're in the overweight range. So BMIs, uh, 25 to 30, averaging around 27. They have increased risk for metabolic syndrome, but that's related to the fact that they are a little bit heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some data, and it's it's because there haven't been prospective uh, longitudinal studies. You know, it's a little bit hard to interpret, but do suggest that the men may also be at increased risk for heart attacks. And there's increased type 2 diabetes in male relatives as in uh, female relatives. And in the sons, we see really quite early in infancy uh, and childhood this increase in body weight, tendency to be overweight. And uh, then um, there are increased levels of AMH in the sons, anti-mullerian hormone, uh, as there are in the daughters. In women, it's a marker for the number of follicles. Men, it probably relates to um, the Sertoli cells in the testis, which are part of um, the uh, germ cell complex. Oh, that's so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. So, you know, I, my whole approach to PCOS is to help empower women with um, with the knowledge and the confidence so that they can really advocate for themselves. And this genetic information is so important. I know I, uh, last month, spoke with uh, Dr. Footewhite, and I know he did some studies on mothers of women with PCOS and elevated risk of cardiovascular incidences. Um, I just wanted to ask you, knowing the, re- the what you know and the genetic research that you've done, as a woman listening to this recording, should she inform her mother or father about kind of the research that's coming out about the elevated risks for certain, um, you know, like you said, the, the blood sugar issues with, with fathers or the um, potential for diabetes? You know, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think that women with PCOS should inform their family members that there may be increased risk for diabetes and heart disease. Um, Fortunately, the sort of general health screening recommendations in the United States are uh, that we do measure lipid profiles or at least cholesterol starting fairly young in people and that we do do some basic diabetes screening uh, also just as part of routine care. But I think, you know, it would be good for these family members uh, to say to their physicians that, you know, that they are in a family that has increased risk. Um, That's, 
you know, one of the big problems with PCOS uh, is that it's so poorly understood among the general medical community, mm-hmm. and um, that's something that I think is is a very very important public health initiative because it it is such a common disorder with these implications for not only the woman but for her family members. And I think now if a woman went to a general internist and said, I have PCOS and, you know, my family should be concerned, the the general internist would sort of scratch his or her head. Um, And, you know, that's where we hope that over the next few years we can make educational uh, efforts to get this syndrome better understood in the general medical community so the appropriate kind of risk reduction is taken uh, for women and their family members. Mm-hmm. So I have a daughter, and she's five years old. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, and for other women out there that have young young girls, um, you know, when should they really be screened for PCOS, and how would a doctor, you know, how could we advocate for them, and what would the approach be? Well, um, it's very controversial about. Uh, the diagnosis of PCOS in, in adolescent girls. So for two years after the start of periods, menarche, which is you know around an average age of 12 in the United States, a little bit African-American girls tend to be a little bit earlier than, than white girls, um, periods can be irregular for those first two years. So the recommendation is not to make the diagnosis of PCOS until two years after the period start. Mm-hmm. That said, I think, you know, particularly if the mom had it, maybe the uh, the daughter is having, you know, also uh, weight gain. Uh, usually that's a young age to start to get the clinical symptoms of hair growth that it would be possible to measure the male hormone levels at that time. The ovaries, almost all girls around the time of the start of their periods have polycystic ovaries. So polycystic ovaries are very common and they're kind of a common developmental process and the younger you are, uh, the more likely you are to have polycystic changes in the ovaries. So the, the ovaries aren't helpful for the diagnosis of at that point. But definitely if a a daughter is having irregular periods beyond uh, two years after the start of her periods or her periods haven't started um, by 14 or 15, she should be evaluated uh, for PCOS formally by a pediatric endocrinologist who actually knows how to do the evaluation um, uh, because Similarly to the situation with adult women, you need to find a physician who who knows how to do uh, the evaluation. Yeah, that's an excellent recommendation. I know a lot of women just don't know who to go to. Is it an OBGYN, um, you know, a, a, an endocrinologist? But I love this recommendation of a pediatric endocrinologist, um, and and you feel that they would be the most informed. Yes, it, you know, for for a teenage girl. I mean, the yeah. usual story that we see, um, you know. So I, I mean, I do see girls um, from age twelve uh, often, uh, but uh, a lot of 
women who come to me in their early 20s, the typical history was their period started, they were irregular, mom took them to the gynecologist, the gynecologist didn't do any testing and put them on a birth control pill, and then they come to see me and they've either stopped the birth control pills and their periods are irregular, or they're trying to get pregnant, and you know then it comes to they get the evaluation for the PCOS. Um, which is kind of my story. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I also just wanted to, to ask, for those women that are trying to conceive um, or are pregnant now, you know, is is there anything that they can do to um, lessen the risk of their daughter having PCOS, um, you know, taking care of themselves so their androgens aren't high during pregnancy? I mean, is there any indicators that anything that they do before pregnancy or while they're pregnant could help reduce the risk? There, There's certainly nothing um, definitive. I think what's important to know is that the mom's male hormones are metabolized by the placenta, and so they un- don't reach the fetus unless they're very, very, very high. Um, So the placenta is a very good barrier to male hormones. Um, We think if there's any male hormone excess during the pregnancy that it's coming from uh, the baby's own uh, adrenal glands and maybe even ovary, and that's just a hypothesis. There's no proof for that Mm -hmm. at this this point. Um, So that's not something to worry about. I think that the... Um, to follow the recommendations on how much weight gain, the newest recommendations to really not gain more than the recommended weight during pregnancy because weight gain during pregnancy independent of PCOS increases risk uh, for pregnancy complications and also increases risk for the baby's long-term risk for having uh, obesity. So good um, health management of body weight, um, if the blood sugars are high, management of those, uh, certainly a woman with PCOS should pay very careful attention to. Thank you. That's, That's great advice. Um, Well, I I wanted to ask you about a recent discovery um, of a gene linked to PCOS. I know it came out maybe towards the end of March this year. Um, Mm -hmm. It uh, was a a research that was um, part of the National Institutes of Health, um, and a, a gene was found that could possibly help with diagnosis. And maybe you could share a little bit more about that with our listeners. So where that gene was found, and it just has letters. It's a gene that we don't know very much about, but D-E-N-N-D-1-A was in this Chinese study of PCOS looking for common susceptibility genes uh, for PCOS. So that was about two years ago now that that was published. It was one of the 11 genes that they mapped. Subsequently, our group and another group has found that the same gene is associated with PCOS in uh, women of European Caucasian ancestry. However, these are 
common genes, and they they confer very little increased risk for PCOS. So even if I found that you had this variant that was associated with PCOS, um, I couldn't really say with any certainty at all that you were destined to get PCOS. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the uh, argument that this paper makes is that this this gene, which is very interesting, may have a function in the regulation of androgen production by by the ovary. So that's fascinating because it was a gene we were very puzzled about when it was found. How could this be related to PCOS? So this paper provides the first evidence that it may have a role in ovarian function. That's very exciting. The idea that it would be better than the androgen measurements themselves or any of the other uh, measurements we already have of active PCOS, um, I think, is something that that needs needs a lot of uh, research. So, in your mind, then the the Rotterdam criteria for diagnosis is still the right approach for diagnosis. Well, uh, I think you know the Rotterdam criteria are very very broad criteria, and they. Com- they were designed i was at the i was part of them mm-hmm. um and, and they were designed to completely encompass the original nih criteria uh but to include the polycystic ovary morphology which had not been included in the original nih criteria because we knew even then in 1990 that it was a nonspecific finding and that 20 to 30% of women who have regular periods can have polycystic ovaries. And a percentage of women, um, and it depends on how hard you look for the um, cysts, you know, some people look very, very hard, um, but a percentage of women with polycystic ovary syndrome with the anovulation, the high male hormones, everything else, don't have polycystic ovarian changes. It's also been shown that it's age-related, and so as women get older, they're less likely to have it, and the polycystic ovaries aren't a marker for any metabolic problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think where I hope the field is going, and I wrote an editorial with uh, Bart Fauser, so Dr. Fauser from uh, Rotterdam was the organizer of the Rotterdam Conference. I was the organizer of the NIH Conference. And we wrote an an editorial for the JCM last year, Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, um, in fact, that you might want to share on your website, called uh, Renaming uh, PCOS, a Mm Two-State Solution, because at the most recent NIH conference on PCOS, the impartial panel recommended that it needed a new name. What is good about the NIH criteria is that any doctor can use them. They don't need an ovarian ultrasound. And the NIH criteria of high male hormones or evidence of clinical male hormone problems, hirsutism, and irregular periods, you know, which are a good sign of anovulation, Mm -hmm. identifies the women with PCOS 
who are at high risk for all of the metabolic problems. So those are the group of women that endocrinologists and general doctors and cardiologists need to be concerned about. And it would make care of women so much better if the general medical community knew how to diagnose PCOS and weren't intimidated by the fact of being told they need to do an ovarian ultrasound because most doctors don't have access to that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in this country where, you know, reproductive endocrinologists do their own ovarian ultrasounds, and that's the only way to get an accurate one. If I sent you to a radiologist for an ultrasound, um, 99 times out of 100, if you had polycystic ovaries, the reading wouldn't come back saying polycystic ovaries because the radiologists don't know how to diagnose it. They'd say, you know, scattered follicular cysts. So essentially a general doctor, a non-reproductive endocrinologist, can't get a good ultrasound, and it's not needed to diagnose the concerning form towards a woman's general medical health, not her reproductive health, but her medical health form of PCOS. So we're advocating that that form, the NIH form, should have a new name that focuses more on its metabolic problems. So so that would be, would you consider that another, like a phenotype of PCOS? Yeah, I mean, people talk now about the different phenotypes, and it's what people call the classic phenotype or the NIH phenotype. And there's been a lot of suggestion and talk that that should have a name like metabolic reproductive syndrome, MISSES, or metabolic reproductive ovarian syndrome, uh, and even um, the reproductive endocrinologists. There was a meeting, um, an updated expert opinion meeting in Amsterdam a couple of years ago, uh, where everybody supported the idea that we have a second name. So there would be two names. Oh, I see. Uh, and, you know, PCOS would be kept because polycystic ovaries are important for the reproductive endocrinologist to know about because they can hyperstimulate during uh, ovulation induction therapies. But for mm -hmm. the general medical community, it's important to know about the people who are at risk for um, uh, diabetes and other problems. Cardiovascular disease. <coughs> um, well, this is just such wonderful information. Uh, I, I did want to just ask you about your um, work that you're doing and your studies. And if women listening, um, you know, have families that there are multiple women with markers of PCOS, can they mm -hmm. get involved in your studies? Yes, absolutely. Uh, they can email PCOS at Northwestern, that's all one word, N-O-R-T-H-W-E-S-T-E-R-N dot E-D-U, or they can Google us, PCOS Northwestern. We have a website. You can contact us through our website. And uh, we're very, very interested in families um, with a lot of times women and families don't even know that they have some of the milder forms of, of PCOS. So we'll find that one 
woman will have the classic form with irregular cycles and high male hormones, and then when we screen the sisters, they'll have high male hormones but irregular about regular cycles. So we're very interested in families where there are multiple women between the ages of 16 and 40 so we can do the evalu- evaluation. Um, we will arrange for all of the evaluation to be done free of charge in local laboratories. So you don't even have to um, travel to uh, uh, Northwestern to be uh, worked up. And um, then the other group that we're very interested in doing studies is to trying to learn what the childhood warning uh, markers of PCOS are in daughters. And Mm. so we have studies that we can start even when children are um, three months old and on where we can collect the diapers and we can extract the urine from the diapers and measure male hormone metabolites. So it's completely non-invasive. The mothers can ship us diapers. Um, so again, they don't have to come in. Uh-huh. And we found that in girls who are daughters one to three years old, they already have evidence for changes, increases in male hormone metabolism. Wow. Um, and then by the time they're about 8 to 12 years old, they already have evidence for diabetes risk. Wow. So, it, I mean, that just goes to confirm how important good nutrition is early on. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you so, want to do everything possible to decrease risk factors mm-hmm. for type 2 diabetes if you're somebody with PCOS. Or have family members. So can you leave us um, today with a, a positive note, um, you know, something that maybe you've seen in your research or something, uh, you know, there just seems to be so much negativity around PCOS. Um, you know, tell us some good news. Well, I think PCOS over the next few years will really start to get the recognition in the medical community that it, that it deserves, you know, based on um, the fact that it is a, an important condition uh, that signals risk for diabetes and so that women will get diagnosed accurately and get appropriate prevention. We have very good ways now, very well-proven ways to prevent diabetes and people who are high risk uh, for diabetes. And then I think this ongoing genetic research, that this is probably the most uh, promising line of investigation to start to find the actual causes of PCOS. And once that happens, once we know a cause, it, it can be very, very rapid time from the identification of of a a disrupted molecular pathway to the identification of drugs that can block that pathway. And in fact, we're finding a lot of times that there are already approved drugs that can be used if we understand the biology uh, of a condition. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Denae, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to to share your knowledge and, and wisdom. 
uh, I want everyone to know I, I, there is a link to Dr. Uh, Denaith's work at Northwestern, as well as the, um, the email link uh, below this recording. And thanks again. Um, and we look forward to reading um, your latest studies in the future. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs>